Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's January the 28th, 2022. The headlines this morning, as they have been all week, are dominated by the Ukraine. Financial Times reports that the Ukraine crisis, I'm not sure if it is a crisis, marks uh, the biggest test yet for what they call the Biden doctrine on foreign policy. Uh, the FT also reports that the empire has returned, Russia, Ukraine, and the long shadow of the Soviet Union once the empire returns. And we're thinking history. The H word comes up, of course, Hitler. Um, in the Wall Street Journal, um, William Galston, who's been on this show, suggests that the Ukraine crisis for Vladimir Putin is what the Treaty of Versailles was like for Hitler. And of course, the issue of Hitler and Putin is one that's been coming up often uh, over the last few years. Back in 2018, British lawmakers compared Putin's uh, football World Cup to Hitler's Olympics, uh, and it was the then British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson who uh, said that Putin was using the World Cup in the same way as Hitler used the Olympics to raise the profile of Nazi Germany. Johnson, of course, is also in the headlines, um, in the name of God go, uh, some UK parliamentarians within his own party suggesting he should resign. Those were the words, of course, used by Amory to get rid of Chamberlain in a, in a, in, in a much larger crisis uh, in British history just before uh, the Second World War. Um, but, of course, Johnson likes to compare himself with uh, Winston Churchill. He is the author of uh, The Churchill Factor. And he has defined his career and many others in terms of Winston Churchill, one man who's been doing a lot of thinking about history, Hitler, Boris Johnson. But above all else, Winston Churchill is my guest today, uh, Jeffrey Wheatcroft. He is the author of a wonderful new book uh, called Churchill Shadow, The Life and Afterlife of Winston Churchill. Churchill is, of course, ubiquitous so to kick off uh, with um with jeffrey let me ask you uh, jeffrey a, a question what would winston do um if he was around today when it comes to the ukraine i have no idea and i think that even to ask the question illustrates the entire problem of churchill's legacy i mean there are American politicians who say that they address every problem with the question, what would Jesus do? Uh, asking what would Winston do doesn't seem to be much more helpful. Um, Churchill is no longer with us, although he does loom very large over every crisis as each one comes up. Uh, in 2008, over the Georgia, South Ossetia crisis, and now again, over Ukraine, which is to say one uh, pundit, and uh, I would say one saber rattler after another, has invoked the shadow of Munich and Neville Chamberlain and appeasement. There's a long list of them. Uh, I'm sure somebody else, another op-ed column will appear any minute 
Mark Teaston in the Washington Post was the latest to, to compare appeasing Putin over Ukraine to appeasing uh, Hitler over Czechoslovakia and the Sudetenland in 1938. And these comparisons are, are always misleading. Um, and they almost invariably lead to disaster. Uh, um, we can, I could talk about Churchill's own career, but is this the crucial episode in some ways in his career, even though he became prime minister uh, at the greatest crisis in this country's history in 1940. The crucial episode was 1938 and Chamberlain's Munich Agreement, uh, which is incidentally appears in a very interesting new movie called Munich with Jeremy Irons giving a sympathetic portrayal of Neville Chamberlain. Um, the actual events are completely forgotten uh, about Munich and, and misunderstood. So that you have, as I've said, every time somebody suggests any kind of rational compromise, uh, the, sh the shadow of Munich is invoked. And it has led to disaster again and again and again. I mean, a short list would go like this. In Korea, um, General Douglas MacArthur, uh, having brilliantly landed behind the North Korean lines, uh, wanted to advance to the Yalu River, the frontier with China. President Truman warned him against this and said that it would be a, a foolish provocation of the Chinese, to which MacArthur told the president his face that he was talking like Neville Chamberlain. So MacArthur, more or less uh, disobediently, advanced to the Yalu River, whereupon the Chinese army hurled itself at the American and Allied forces and drove them all the way back to the other end of the Korean Peninsula. In 1956, Anthony Eden's British government uh, was obsessed with the idea that Colonel Nasser, the Egyptian ruler, was a new Churchill. Um, he was Hitler on the Nile. This was uh, any form of appeasement of him would be another Munich. And so we, the British and the French, together with the Israelis, cooked up the Suez episode, which was a complete and utter fiasco and ended in complete humiliation and, and Chamberlain's resignation, uh, Anthony Eden's resignation, I should say. He'd already resigned in 1938 as in, in opposition to the policy and, of uh, Eden was being groomed for years as Churchill's successor. And when he did succeed him, he lasted about two years. It served him right, really, didn't it? Well, it did. But, uh, but, but, it, but he, his poor fellow was undone by this, this um, continual um, echo of Munich. Um, then in... Uh, 1965, Lyndon Johnson said that he needed to greatly to increase the American army in Vietnam because otherwise he would look like Neville Chamberlain and um, Ho Chi Minh would be. Um, in, all fairness, um, in all fairness, Jeffrey, no one really wants to look like Arthur Neville Chamberlain, as you can see on the screen. He, he wasn't. He, he he wasn't exactly a box of chocolates, was he? Well, he wasn't, but he was a very great uh, politician. He was by and you're far... very kind, actually, in your book. Um, and you, w whilst some people have suggested the book has been unfairly critical on Churchill, I actually didn't think it was, and I think it's a fairly balanced book, uh, you suggest that perhaps Churchill's greatest moment was the speech he made um, to honour 
Chamberlain's death, which happened fairly soon after Chamberlain's resignation over Munich. That's quite right. It's a magnificent speech, very little remembered nowadays. And he, Churchill, apart from saying that history, as with its flickering lamp, illuminates the path as we stumble along. And in one moment, men appear to have been right in another wrong. Then he said that Chamberlain had been uh, deceived by a wicked man, Hitler, uh, but his Chamberlain's motive was the pursuit of peace, which was always a, a most honorable thing to pursue. And uh, that was correct. I mean, Chamberlain's career, just because I don't think many Americans do know this, had been extremely distinguished. He was, uh, from 1924 to 1929, he was Minister of Health in Stanley Baldwin's Conservative government when Churchill was Chancellor of the Exchequer, not a very successful one. And Chamberlain transformed the country. He introduced 25 new pieces of legislation, which laid the entire foundation of modern social security and public welfare. And, uh, and Do you think that Chamberlain, I mean, I'm sure someone's written the book, but there is an interesting comparison conceptually between Neville Chamberlain and Winston Churchill. Um, you mentioned Chamberlain's political career, um, and it reminds me in a way of, of Max Weber's wonderful 1919 um, speech, Politics as a Vocation, in which um, Weber was very worried, warned about the emergence of the professional politician. Chamberlain was a professional politician in the best and worst sense, whereas Churchill was the ultimate amateur, wasn't he? The generalist, someone who treated politics as a game, as a form of entertainment, and indeed turned it into a game and entertainment. Well, that's, that is partly true and partly not true. I mean, Churchill was very much despised by um, members of the class from which he came, uh, the, the aristocracy, because he was the grandson of the Duke of Marlborough, and he was looked down on as a professional politician. Uh, he, he, he was in salaried political office from 1905 to 1929, almost done in well, The money didn't really matter. He made all his money from writing. Well, he, he later made all his money from writing, but for years his his ministerial salary, which in those days was in 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 real terms something like um, four hundred thousand pounds, enormously more than a minister is paid today, and there were as a very good reason, and of course income tax was much lower. There was a very good reason for a, a politician to what if he didn't have a, an independent income, which Churchill always lacked. Um, and he was basically insolvent throughout his life until 1939, when he became prime minister. And he was in financial difficulties even after that. He did earn an enormous amount of money in the 1930s. From he writing. drank a lot. He seemed to drink most of his money away, as you suggested. I don't remember, but, but, but after he earned a particularly large amount from one of his best-selling works, or the, the, the advance for a best-selling work, he um, he bought hundreds of bottles of champagne, so he clearly had a good life, didn't he? he? Enjoyed himself. He had a very good life in that respect. I mean, he lived he lived always beyond his means, even though he was earning an average of about eleven thousand uh, pounds uh, in the nineteen thirties, which is well over a million today. 
he couldn't live within that income. He which is a nice, a, which is in, in, in our rather bourgeois times, uh, Jeffrey. It's a nice uh, aristocratic trait to live beyond one's means. We, we in America, in particular, are not supposed to celebrate that, but perhaps we should. Living beyond one's means is a very all too human thing. Well, I've done enough of it myself um, over the. <laughs> As you uh, note uh, in your uh, your afterword, it sounds like your wife paid for this book. Well, she did. That is perfectly true. Absolutely. As a fashion designer, your your book has um, got some wonderful reviews. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, the, the New York Times review by Peter Baker who's been on the show, was headlined The Case Against Winston Churchill. I think that's rather unfair. Uh, Baker was on the show recently with his wife, Susan Glasser, uh, talking about the book they both wrote on James Baker, the man who apparently ran Washington. Do you think um, your book, uh, Churchill Shadow, represents a case against Winston Churchill? I, I, I personally didn't think so. Well, I'm very glad that you said that. I mean, authors complaining about unfavorable reviews are bad enough, but for an author to complain about a favorable review would be intolerable. Peter Baker's review in the New York Times was very gratifying, and it delighted my American publisher, as you can imagine. Uh, he ended up by calling it the best indictment of Churchill yes, yet published. And if you're called the best of anything, you should really keep quiet about it. But I did murmur to myself that I never set out to write an indictment of Churchill or um, a case against Churchill. I, I, another English critic has said that this book is not uh, a demolition job, it's a reassessment. And that's certainly my intention at any rate. Who said uh, if, that? If, if, if people think that it's... Who, who was um, the English critic who said it was a reassessment? Rupert Christensen. He's an English journalist and right. author. Uh, Andrew Roberts, of course... Uh described it, your, your intellectual enemy, I don't know if you're personally friends with him, as a, 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 a Churchill character assassination, which I think was particularly unfair. That was my sense. Anyway. Well, it is very difficult for me to speak uh, about Andrew Roberts uh, with detachment. He's never been a personal enemy, I would emphasize. <laughs> well, you, uh, you don't write about him with detachment either in the book. <laughs> well, only because he is m more than merely a historian and biographer. He's a political player. He was a, an intimate of George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and John Bolton. Yeah. And he was a, an ardent supporter of the Iraq war, which he regarded as the crowning achievement of the, the, the long struggle of the English-speaking peoples, whoever quite they might yeah, be. You make the point, you're, you're the, the last hundred pages of the book is about essentially uh, Churchill's afterlife, and um, the neocons feature very centrally in, in that. Um, Jeffrey, in 1943, I think it was, um, uh, after the Nazis bombed the West, uh, House, uh, Westminster, uh, the Commons Chamber was rebuilt. Churchill insisted on the, the two-chamber structure, the, 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 the two-sided structure of the chamber, and he famously said, we shape our buildings, they are after they shape us. Uh, classic piece of Churchillian brilliance. I wonder whether we might remix that about Churchill and say, we shape our politicians, thereafter they shape us. Well, that's really the, that, the essence of your book. That, that is absolutely true. The point about the Chamber of the House of Commons is an interesting one because um, 
in the curious way that English, British English usage is continually Americanized, I've read political commentators here on the subject of British politicians talking about reaching across the aisle, which of course is an American political phrase, and it, it takes its name from the structure of of the two houses of Congress, House of Representatives and, and the, uh, the Senate, both of which are semicircular and uh, running down the middle is an aisle between the two parties. Whereas the House of Commons began life in the Middle Ages as the chapel of St. Stephen in the Palace of Westminster. And uh, as in a, a college chapel, they, the two sides face each other. And Churchill didn't reach across the aisle in 1904, he crossed the floor, which is to say he abandoned the Conservative Party under whose banner he'd been elected to Parliament and joined the Liberals on the other side. And um, he believed in, in adversarial politics in that respect, although, of course, during the finest hour of 1940, which I agree it was, uh, he was leading a grand coalition of all the parties, Labour and Liberals, as well as the Tories. Um, the, 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 your point about how we shape our politicians, they shape us, is entirely correct. And I, I set out, I should say, with my book, originally thinking of writing a book simply on Churchill's amazing afterlife and this, his long shadow that he's cast ever since his death in 1965. But then I realized that I couldn't write that and explain it without looking back at his, his own life itself. So I, uh, I did just that. It's not, my book is certainly not a formal biography of Churchill, but it's a reassessment. And it offers, I would like to think, not uh, a character assassination, um, but an alternative to the innumerable hagiographies and the adoring accounts of Churchill, which proliferate on the, in the bookshelf, bookshops. Yeah, and I think it's, um... I, 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 my sense is it certainly wasn't a hagiography, but you're a big admirer of the man. You recognize his limitations, and it's a fairly balanced um, account, both of his life and afterlife. Um, what lessons do you think Churchill teaches us in a party political culture where everyone says that they're not part of parties anymore? We're supposed to live beyond ideology, or at least the ideologies of the 20th century. Is Churchill's ability to jump from party to party, from the liberals to the conservatives and then back to the conservatives while kind of flirting in some senses with the soft left, it, could he be a model for the 21st century of someone who is beyond or before ideology? Well, I hope not. I mean, the idea of the end of ideology has been floating around for 50 or 60 years. It was the title of an essay about 60 years ago. And, and of course, it's been very much uh, picked up by people like Tony Blair, who like to think that he it was doesn't a, come out of your book very well. <laughs> well, um, no, but I mean, he uh, he invoked Churchill's mantle or tried to don it during the Iraq War. And you judge for yourself whether the Iraq War has been a success or not. Another another Churchillian shadow. Well, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, we actually uh, had a show a show with. Um, Robert Draper, a very distinguished historian of Iraq, of the Iraq War, who, who argues that the Iraq War was the biggest disaster in American foreign policy. I don't know if we can blame that on Winston Churchill or Tony Blair. Probably. Well, it's a, bit, it's a bit hard to blame Churchill 
the things that happened after his death in one sense. But it's not entirely unfair because, uh, I mean, as I've said earlier, you know, he set out a particular uh, stall in 1938 with his opposition to the Munich Agreement and, and to, to appeasement. And uh, it came back to, to haunt him himself. I mean, by 1953, Churchill was being accused of appeasement by American politicians because he, his second prime ministership from 1951 to 55 was really very unsuccessful indeed. And he, he, his powers were failing and he should have retired from political leadership. But he had one honorable motive, which was he was completely horrified by the, the, the atomic bomb, and um, although he applauded its use in 1945, uh, and, and he was appalled by the prospect of the world being destroyed in a nuclear war, and he believed that he could cut a deal uh, with his old chum Joseph Stalin, and and he uh, he, he he returned to office uh, almost obsessed by this idea that there could be. A, a, a detente, as we now say, I mean, that was a later phrase between the West and Russia, and um, as, which is what some people, incidentally, are advocating today. But they're very much not the Churchillians. There are they are the people who uh, are offering a critique of the post-Churchillian neocon version of events, and uh, suggesting that uh, there is no reason whatever to go to war with Russia over. Ukraine. Or do well, I, I hope uh, certainly um, Churchill will be brought up endlessly as this Ukraine crisis plays out and hopefully ends peacefully. We are talking with Jeffrey Wheatcroft, the author of a wonderful, it's a pretty new book. It came out uh, late last year, Churchill's Shadow, The Life and Afterlife of Winston Churchill, a particularly relevant book in the context of the crisis um, in the Ukraine and our way, some of us at least, of presenting Putin as Hitler. Um, after the break, I want to talk about Churchill's use of narrative, his multiple personalities, um, and of course, his racism and other uh, colonial traits. We, we, uh, we'll be back in about 60 seconds, so hold tight, everybody. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of 
uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the Lit Hub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenan. We are back with uh, the great English journalist, Jeffrey Wheatcroft, the author of Churchill's Shadow. Uh, it's a wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. Um, at one point uh, in the book, uh, you quote Sir Maurice Bonham Carter, classic, seems a little bit like an upper-class English twit, but he was more than a twit. He was a politician, a civil servant, and a first-class cricketer. He did many things. Uh, and he described Churchill, he also worked for Churchill, and he was the grandfather of the actress Helena Bonham Carter. He described uh, Churchill as he is personalities. And I thought that that was a, a, a new note that Jeffrey in the book, that that was a very uh, perceptive uh, insight into, into Churchill. He is personalities. How many personalities were there in Churchill? That's not quite what Bonham Carter said, actually, though that's a good point. What Bonham Carter said, this was 1915, when Maurice Bonham Carter, known to his friends as Bongi, um, I happened to be talking uh, to the mother of a friend of mine who had warm memories of Bongi before... Um, quite a name, Bongi. I hope you lived up to that, Jeffrey. She, she was, she was uh, another cousin of that clan. And this was a lady uh, who had just celebrated her 100th birthday. So one doesn't get the opportunity very often to talk to people nowadays who have keen memories of the 1930s. Anyway, Bonham Carter was uh, Asquith's secretary, um, personal secretary, private secretary, and indeed married, Asquith was the prime minister from 1908 to 1916, and married his daughter, Violet, who had been rather keen on Churchill some years before and before he got married. And, and it was at the, the, the crisis that totally disrupted Churchill's career was the Gallipoli campaign, which he uh, wasn't the only author of, but he was very much the you, you You note in the book, and you're not the first, that Churchill was responsible for a series of military disasters throughout his yep. career. It was probably the biggest, the most embarrassing of all disasters, wasn't it? I think it was. It was because it was the most utterly futile. And Churchill, uh, was, yeah. he, he was he was obstinate about it. At the end of his days, he said that the Gallipoli campaign, this was, of course, the Gallipoli is the peninsula which sticks out to the west from what was then called Constantinople and is now called Istanbul. Because Turkey had entered the war on the side of the Germans in 1914. And the, Churchill, not only he, was obsessed by the idea that if Turkey could be knocked out of the war, it would be decisive and would um, would perhaps end the war. But it, there was no good reason to think this at all. If anything, Turkey was rather a liability to the Germans, just as Italy was in the Second War. And and Churchill was one of the authors of the, the, the Gallipoli landing on this peninsula. Um, and to realize, uh, to understand just how impossible it was, what you have to do is something that Churchill himself never did, which is to go to Gallipoli. And you see that this, this 
this cape pushing out right. into the Aegean. So back, so back, back to the, the, the Morris Bonham Carter. The Bonham uh, yeah, I'll go back. I'll go, sorry, that, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That was, I was explaining the, this was yeah. when Churchill uh, was, was basically forced to carry the can for Gallipoli and was deeply unpopular with all his uh, colleagues in the Liberal cabinet. And, and Morris Bonham Carter said, the real problem is Winston's ununderstanding of personalities. And that was exactly right. Churchill was always obtuse about other people, and he always read into other people what he wanted to read. Just as and he, he had a very, he was a very bad judge of character. Recently, uh, we had a, a journalist, Joya Diliberto, written a novel, a very interesting factual novel about Coco Chanel, one of the characters who appeared in that book was a man called Bender Grosvenor, Hugh Richard Arthur Grosvenor, the second Duke of Westminster, horrible anti-Semite, the ultimate upper-class twit. And he appears in, in your book, too, as one of Churchill's friends. You note that Churchill was a very bad judge of character, that most of the people who surrounded him were crooks, or they stabbed him in the back, or they were just worthless aristocrats like Bender, often uh, very hateful towards Jews, who, uh, who Churchill was actually a great friend of throughout his life, even if he was also a notorious racist. Well, indeed, I, I find Bendor Westminster, as he was called, who was almost the richest man in England, because his family owned all of Belgravia in London. And um, uh, he was a, a, a monster, really. He, he, he led a a group of armoured cars in a campaign which is now totally forgotten during the Great War in North Africa against the Senussi tribesmen. And on one occasion, he massacred all the villagers, men, women and children. And he was a war criminal. He was odiously anti-Semitic. He was wildly homophobic and hounded his brother-in-law, Lord Beecham, who was a distinguished politician, out of public life and out of the country because he was gay. And, and um, uh, he was Coco Chanel's lover. That's the connection, of course, there. And yeah. On, on occasion, Churchill could be found in Scotland salmon fishing with Coco Chanel. Um, and, and, and you say that they were upper-class twits. Uh, it was more interesting than that in a way because Churchill's closest associates were people like Brendan Bracken, um, F.E. Smith, Lord Birkenhead, Lord Beaverbrook and um, Lord Charwell, as he became Lindemann, the scientist or pseudo scientist, and and it was interesting that a notorious anti-Semite, indeed. So, um, his Churchill's main advisor during the Second War was violently anti-Semitic, and and all all of them, uh, they, they were none of them Englishmen, and they were none of them gentlemen, and of course many people would have said that Churchill himself wasn't a gentleman. That was generally held against him. That was part of his charm, wasn't it? In a, well, way. in a way, in a way, it was part of his, I won't say part of his charm. George Orwell said this in 1940, that that um, Winston Churchill is not a gentleman. He might be the grandson of a duke. Um, but and, 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 and Orwell said this almost by way of praising Churchill, because he was unlike the more conventional upper-class politician. I mean, Neville Chamberlain um, 
was really upper middle class because his family. I mean, the way you present Churchill, which is why I don't buy Baker's case that uh, the book is a case against Churchill, is you present him as a genius of storytelling. He was a master narrator of his own life, the history of his country. He made it all up, but he made it all up brilliantly, didn't he? Well, he was. He was a, he, he, he was a, an artful storyteller and mythmonger, and he created his own legend. I mean, his in, in I think 1957, his wife Clementine, who I, in some ways, is one of the heroines of my a heroine in my book. She had much better judgment than her husband Winston. But she said in 1957, "You know that Winston has become a legend." And that was exactly what he had become, really, through his own um, creation of his own mythology. Um, and uh, to the point where uh, 20 years ago, there was a, a survey of English school children. This caught the attention of Umberto Eco, the Italian writer, and he was much amused by it because more than a quarter of English school children thought that Winston Churchill was a fictional character. But then in a way, that's what he's become. Yeah, he was. Well, you present him as, as a fictional character. And perhaps his, his best narrative, his most masterful trick was, and you know this very much in the book, was the invention of what we call now the special relationship between the United States and the UK. We have uh, Ian Baruma, the former editor of the New York Review of Books. I'm sure you know Ian very well. Um, I do uh, indeed. He's a great uh, friend. Who, who just wrote a book about the absurdity of that special relationship. You spend a lot of time on demythologizing, de I guess, the special relationship and Churchill's central role in building it up. Well, yes. Why, I, why I, in your view, and I, I get the sense, Jeffrey, that you think that this fiction of the special relationship is not only bad for the UK, but it's bad for America too? Most certainly. It is, of course it's bad for both countries. It has been it has been utterly pernicious in its effect. I mean, it's, it, 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 it is, uh, uh, I've, I've written about it before this book. I lectured about the, at the University of Texas about the special relationship as the, the key myth of post-war British politics. Um, uh, Max Hastings, another journalist and historian, has said quite succinctly that Churchill invented the concept of the special relationship for reasons of political expediency and was then the first of many British prime ministers to discover that it didn't exist. Yeah, and you spend a lot of time in the book explaining that Roosevelt was indifferent, hostile, certainly very cold to Churchill, never revealed anything. Well, to say I, I, this is one of the things Andrew Roberts has most violently attacked me for, for saying that um, speculating because how do I, how can anyone really know? But but that, that Churchill and Roosevelt didn't greatly like each other, despite the outward appearance of amity. Um, so many books have been written about Winston and Franklin that uh, it, it seems heretical to suggest that. But their their, their, their personalities were utterly antithetical. Um, Churchill uh, was a very private man in some ways, and he had a small gang of cronies. Uh, uh, but he was also bonhamous and um, was, was a, a bibulous party goer and diner out. Um, uh, whereas uh, Roosevelt, with his deceptive smile, 
which captivated tens of millions of Americans, and his voice, which also captivated the Americans when he did his radio fireside broadcasts, uh, was a much more uh, introverted character. And uh, as his secretary said, called Missy Lehand, he was really incapable of personal friendship. And uh, Churchill deluded himself that he had become a personal friend of Roosevelt, even though Roosevelt was incapable of personal friendship. And, and, and on, the, on the basis of this one personal relationship, Churchill helped to build this completely fallacious notion of a special relationship between the two countries. It did, I, 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 I don't mean, it, it did many other people good. The one thing on, in your book, which again, I'm not a no Churchill expert, that is indefensible in terms of Churchill is his racism. We had the Harvard law professor Randall Kennedy on the show. He's 20, 2002 book, Nigger, has come back out again. It's a, it's a book about the history of the N-word. Um, we've also had Kehinde Andrews on the show, one of the UK's great critics of colonialism and racism, and indeed of Churchill. He pops up in a footnote in your book, um, Jeffrey. Churchill, apart from liking the Jews, was a horrible racist when it came to black Africans, Indians and the Chinese, and you really underline that. And it's this is indefensible because while some people would say, well, a lot of people were like that, not everybody was. Orwell certainly wasn't. Well, um, Andrew Roberts, in his um, very large and, if you like to say, fluent biography of Churchill, which has been described, I think, very well by Max Hastings again as fluent but uncritical, um, quotes one of Churchill's most outrageous utterances in 1937, when Churchill said that he saw nothing wrong with the expropriation or even the extirpation of the American Indians and the Australian Aborigines, because it was simply the advance of history when a backward people was replaced by a stronger, or in his precise words, a higher grade race. Now, uh, Roberts quotes this in his biography and then says, uh, this means may seem shocking today, but it was perfectly orthodox thinking at the time. In other words, Churchill was no different from anyone else. Well, that's not the case. It was not perfectly orthodox thinking at the time, um, or not among more advanced or civilized Englishmen and, and Americans. Of course, one person who did believe in the difference between higher grade races and lower grade races was Adolf Hitler. And it was somewhat paradoxical that those two should have had that in common. And now, in 1994, Andrew Roberts wrote a collection, published a collection of essays called Eminent Churchillians. And it's a very interesting book, which I recommend. And one of the essays is on Churchill's racism, essentially. And Roberts there says that what is obviously true, that 80 years ago, attitudes towards race were very different from what we consider as acceptable today. More generally, uh, was that the case? But then he says, but Churchill was decidedly more racist than most. And he seems to have changed his mind in the course of 25 years for whatever reason. Yeah, one was, and you, you really underline the fact that if he did have a single belief, it was as Britain as the center of the world and the the value historically, culturally, morally of the uh, British Empire. Uh, absolutely. I mean, he, he 
he he he believed had a, in quite a naive way in our island story, as it was called, the long continuity of our island race, and um, you know he extended. And, and look in a way, it sort of I wouldn't say it reads like a comedy, but there is a, a carry-on quality to not only Churchill's life, but particularly his afterlife. There is an absurdity about it, isn't there? Well, it's an absurdity which is, in some respects, unfunny. If it's if it's led to the Iraq War and a potential nuclear exchange with Russia, I mean, this this one deplorable aspect of the Churchillian shadow, which is you discussed already, Munich and appeasement. Um, in some ways, I, I in some ways. Churchill is a slightly comical character. I mean, he, he, he comes he, out of the book as, as, as a lovable role, I think is perhaps the best. Well, but not everyone, not, not, not from, from, yes, yes, sorry, Andrew. No, go on. Well, yeah, but for much of his life, not many people, many, very many people on all sides of British politics and English society would have said, a rogue, yes, but not necessarily very lovable. I mean, the fascinating thing. All rogues are lovable, aren't they? I mean, Hitler wasn't a rogue, he was an evil man. Yes, uh, but uh, in this movie, Munich, I mentioned earlier, there's a brilliant performance of Hitler in, 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 in the movie, and it conveys rather well, uh, I won't say Hitler's charm, but certainly his, his hypnotic quality that he exercised on people. Um, Churchill didn't have, um, Churchill wasn't, was, was, I didn't, obviously he wasn't the same as Hitler, but he was unlike Hitler in other ways. Churchill was never, in fact, a spellbinding orator. Um, his, but he, his, he was a masterful speech writer and he, visually, he, he, you have he, one piece he, in the New York he, book books he, from 2018 on Churchill in movies. I mean, he's a, he's a memorable or he has been turned into a memorable character. Maybe he wasn't that, quite... That is perfectly true. But that's, that's rather the point that amused Umberto Eco, that, that, that Churchill has, has become a fictional character in a way. He's, he's now outside history. He's like Robin Hood or, or, or King Arthur. He's, he's more than reality. I know Eco was very influenced by Baudrillard's notion of, of, of there being a form of hyper-reality. Eco wrote travels in hyper-reality in America, and Churchill, who appears now in modern America and being recreated, is a, is a manifestation of that hyper-reality, isn't he? Yes, he certainly is. And, 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 and it's quite fascinating, because if you go to a movie called Lincoln, it will be perhaps a little sentimental and hero-worshipping in the Steven Spielberg manner, but it will stick quite close to historical fact. If you go to a movie called Churchill, and there was one four years ago, but it didn't which I one. rather enjoyed, I'm sure it was entirely wrong, but it was a lot of fun. And 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 the same year there was uh, Darkest Hour, which was right, Darkest um, Hour was the one I really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, which well, it was indeed, but it, um, um, which was a great success and won an Oscar. Um, but it, it's preposterous. I mean, it bears that there's no semblance of historical reality at all. The whole thing is a complete um, tissue of... And, and that's of, why we need uh, great historians like you, Jeffrey, whose book, Churchill's Shadow, The Life and Afterlife of Winston Churchill, is a true history. It's not a hagiography and it's not just an attempt to destroy Churchill. Finally, um, Jeffrey, 
as I said, I, I think you're somewhat of an admirer of Churchill. You certainly see both the good and the bad in him. What can we learn from him? In an age where politicians who have tried to become Churchill, everyone from Tony Blair to Boris Johnson, um, perhaps even Barack Obama, have failed. What what do we need from politicians? Uh, you know, we, we began the show with Biden, an old man who's clearly way over the hill. We need younger politicians who are able to rewrite national mythologies. You, you quote um, the Italian uh, prime minister, I think, uh, Giovanni Giolitti in the show, in your book, where he talks about beautiful national legends. Now, you have a degree of ambivalence about that, but we do need national legends from politicians. What can a truly post-Churchill politician in Europe or America do, and how are we going to get them? Well, the, the answer to that is what we need is we may need national legends at some times. I mean, in 1940, the, the myth of English uniqueness and greatness helped sustain this country at a moment of extreme peril. Um, but but we, if we need a certain amount of mythology, we also need, and this is where Churchill is so dangerous, we need what the Germans call or making a reckoning with the past or coming to terms with the past. And there's no need continually uh, to uh, denounce historical heroes or um, debunk history uh, in order merely to try and understand the truth. Who's the model for that, Jeffrey? Who is, who, who is your political icon when it comes to coming to terms with the past? I haven't got one. I can't think of one. I think that's the whole that's trouble. The problem then with the argument. well, I mean, I mean, I, there are politicians I admire um, uh, in different ways. I admire Charles de Gaulle and Margaret Thatcher, but they both yeah. of them did invoke beautiful national legends. Well, they have but, to, don't they? Isn't that the essence of politics, for better or worse? Isn't that what Putin's trying to do in Russia? Yes, it is. And, and, and in some ways, although Putin is a monster, I mean, the, uh, the, the Russians have a legitimate point of view over Ukraine, and indeed over the way that the, uh, not, not only has the old Soviet Union disintegrated, but the, um, the eastward extension of NATO was, in my view, and I'm not alone, one of the greatest follies of statecraft in modern times. And there is no need whatever for NATO troops to be stationed in Estonia. Not we are least. back in 1939. Uh, well, that, that is... Winston Shadow, the life and afterlife of Winston Churchill. Jeffrey Wheatcroft, a wonderful guest, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for all your erudition and humour. Uh, the book is a, an amazing read. It's 550 pages. I read every word, or certainly every page. And congratulations on the book. It's been acclaimed. It's not... I think of the New York Times, a hatchet job on, on Churchill. It's much more sophisticated than that. Uh, Jeffrey, you're talking to me from your home in Bath in, uh, in the United Kingdom in, in late January 2022. In addition to Churchill's shadow, what else should people be reading in these dark days when the Ukraine's shadow now hangs over us? Well, a book I've just read and reviewed, it'll be published in the New York Review of Books, is... Jane Ridley's new biography of King George V, which is a terrifically good book, and I strongly recommend it. I mean, Americans may not regularly read 
biographies of English monarchs. But it's it, 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 he lived from his, yeah. his well, we, have other, we have other viewers and listeners, Jeffrey, apart from Americans. So. Well, I realize that. But um, the, he reigned from 1910 to 1935, which was one of the most dramatic quarter centuries there have been. And, and he was uh, therefore king during the Great War. Uh, and he comes out of it in some ways as a very admirable man um, who um, was much more humane than some of the politicians who served him. Um, that is a book I would strongly recommend. I mean, any serious work of history um, helps us understand the problems we're dealing with today. Um, and your uh, book, um, Churchill's Shadow, is indeed a serious work of history. Congratulations again on it. Jeffrey, I'd love to have you back on the show again. Maybe with, if we can, if we can dig up Andrew Roberts, perhaps uh, Ian Baruma or other people who who appreciate the complexity of, of, of the Churchillian myth and the Churchillian model. Thank you so much uh, again, uh, Jeffrey, and uh, we will talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you, Andrew. That was very good.